0: Welcome to the Codecast Podcast, real world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Codecast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So, today, our topic is denials management. And the reason I wanted to bring that to your attention is that I'm getting a lot of coding corner membership clients asking me to help them write appeals. And we just want to make sure that you're heading down the right path on that because there are some new denials that are coming up and then there's some potentially new denials that could come up and also potentially have some high risk for you. And we want to make sure you stay away from that. So here's something that I've been looking into and it's about the remittance advice or the EOB denial code. CO-16. And what that says is claim service lacks information. And then you also get N382 and it says missing incomplete invalid patient identifier, and that may come across your desk. So I don't know if you were aware of this, but the patients for Medicare, their Medicare beneficiary identifier, remember those were all changed from their social security number a couple of years ago. So those can change at any time. So the patient can request a change or if it's been compromised, it's just like if you have a credit card where somebody inadvertently used it or there's a fraud alert or or the patient feels that somebody got a hold of it they can call and request that that's a problem and so i didn't i don't think a lot of people knew that so you're submitting the claim and the patient forgot to tell you that there was an update in that their mbi number and so what do you do so here are a few tips on that first of all in your system you want to pull up the patient's demographics And look for the look in the insurance section. And if you do not have this available, communicate with your front desk and just say, hey, have you been asking patients for any kind of updates? That's the first thing. And then also look in a patient document folder. So you may find in their document folder, if you have that in their portal, you may be able to find a copy of their updated insurance card. Um, so if you have any kind of prior authorization letter uh, in their document folder, and I'm talking about in your EMR and your billing system, uh, you may find this because I'm noticing a lot of billers coders and collectors basically are just like what do i do what do i do and sometimes they actually don't go into their system and see what's available there and maybe somebody updated it without telling them now i know everyone thinks the last resort is to call the patient but and you want to use all of your resources before calling the patient but it's something that you really have to consider Um, and then patient portal or, or i'm sorry the medicare portal This is something that you can also access if you have three essentials. That's the name, date of birth, and social security number for the patient. You can go into the Medicare portal and find the patient's updated MBI number. Make sure you ask for permission. Also there's secondary insurance. So most Medicare patients have a secondary insurance or some kind of supplemental plan. And you can check the eligibility of their secondary, whether it be Medicaid or a private insurance company, and that usually has the MBI on there, the current one, because there's a coordination of benefits with that. So make sure that you are doing everything you can to get those updated numbers, but I think that some people maybe were not aware that it could change those uh, actual um, numbers, the MBI number could change without you even knowing it. So here's another thing that's going to be taking effect as of May 26, it looks like, unless we can get as many state uh, societies pushing back on Cigna, and also it looks like Aetna is doing this, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about it, and that's having to send in paperwork with a 25 modifier on the same date as a minor procedure. So Cigna put out something a couple weeks ago and basically said that if you're going to submit claims... Um, after May 23rd, I think it is, that you are going to have to submit paperwork with that. And just the administrative nightmare of doing that is, is really a problem. And this stems from having a few bad actors that will try to code for and report office visits on the same day as planned minor procedures. I mean, how many times have we seen the dermatology groups on the OIG work plan because they're doing total body exams or they're doing some kind of um, an EM on the same day as a planned uh, skin? lesion removal or skin procedure. Uh, we see it in primary care offices and family practice offices. I mentioned Durham and, you know, um, gastroenterology offices. So we see it a lot of places and it's it's for a couple of reasons. Sometimes the E and M has nothing to do with the procedure um, and the, you know, maybe patients are being followed by chronic conditions or managing their medicines or whatever. But if that visit is only about confirming that they need to come in for that procedure. Or if it's only once again, to just say, hi, you're here for your procedure, then of course you aren't supposed to bill for it. It would have to be a medically indicated, um, other issue that other than the procedure that you are um, seeing the patient for. Well, there's also, I don't want to say exception to the rule, but CPT says that you don't need a different diagnosis with the 25 modifier. I don't always agree with that from a billing perspective, but because it's hard to get paid on that in that way. But um, it it makes sense when you when you think about it if it prompted the reason for the minor procedure. So a patient comes in and they're complaining of, let's say they're even a new patient. They're complaining of major shoulder pain. They've had it for a couple of years. They finally went to the doctor. I know I'm, you know, a problem with that where I don't go unless at one point I can't lift my arm. So... At that um, office, at that office visit, the doctor says, "You know, let's try, a you know, a shoulder injection. Um, maybe that'll help. I think it's frozen shoulder, but you know, your X-rays were really inconclusive. But let's see if we can get some uh, pain relief for you at least." And so then they do an injection. Both of those should be able to be billed, but Cigna is saying not unless you want to send me all your paperwork. And what's interesting is that they put out a fax number, who faxes anymore, and a, or they called it a dedicated fax line and then a dedicated uh, unsecured email line. So now they're promoting. Um, you know, HIPAA, non-protection there. I don't know if that's a word, but basically not HIPAA secure. And so it's just, it's such a problem. Well, the reason I bring this up, and if you are a member of mine, so if you need a copy of the new policy and also the letter that um, 15 different societies sent out, I think actually we might be up to 16 now, then let me know. You have to be a member and I'll give it to you. So you can always sign up at terryfletcher.net. But one of the things that I had a client actually come back and say is, well, this is what we're going to do. Okay, now hold on to your seat on this one because you cannot, let me repeat, you cannot do this. They said, we're going to go ahead and still do it on the same date, the minor procedure and the office visit, but we're going to bill the procedure on a different date. I'm like, wait, what? They said, yeah, we checked with our compliance officer and our compliance department, which some practices that are small don't even have them. And this is a group that's over 40 physicians and i said what did they tell you to do and they said well they said go ahead and do both things on the same date and then just bill the um, put the date of service for the minor procedure on a on a separate date and i'm like no who told you to do that i want names and addresses you can't bill for a service on a date of service that didn't happen just think of a patient got the eob on that okay the first of all it's wrong and it's fraudulent but if a patient gets an eob and says i wasn't there that day actually if you if you want to look at my calendar I was in the air. I was in the airport. I was flying to Europe for a vacation that day, and the list goes on. I mean, you talk about getting into trouble. You can't manipulate the rules based on something you don't like. You have to go to your societies. You have to go to, you know, your um, your lobbying effort. MGMA if your family practice, AAFP if your cardiology. You know, ACC. Go to your lobbying bodies and say you need to try and stop this. California Medical Association, Texas Medical Association. There's a reason they're there. They're not just there for education. They're there as your voice uh, collectively. So you need to get them to get on these payers and also get your governor involved and say, this is unfair practices. But to say that you're going to bill something on a separate day to slide it by and get around the the contract rule, don't do that. I, I just when I hear stuff like that, I'm just like, no, you can't do that. So I know some of you are like. You're kidding, right? I'm like, no, not kidding. Now, here's a question that came up as well. And this one is a question plus also why you could possibly be seeing denials. And this is for our portal visits, the 99421 to 423. So that we also call them online digital evaluation and management services. Make sure that you read the directions in CPT before you jump into anything. Now, these are not considered under the telehealth list for CMS covered list. So you don't need to place a service 02 or 10 or modifier 95. They're actually under what we call um, the CBTS, that's Communication-Based Technology Services, meaning that they're covered regardless of PHE status. And M- Medicare does cover them in a very um, basic um, reimbursement. But the question that came in was kind of interesting. Um, there was somebody that said, well, can I bill for these when it is a, um, a healthcare professional that's not a, a physician? And the answer is no, because these are under EM services. Evaluation and Management Services says that these are, are used for physicians, physician assistants, uh, advanced pr- practice nurse practitioners, and then these are the online cumulative, so it's in a seven day period, of EM services via a secure platform. So you, you do have um, some of the codes that are 98970 to 98972 for clinicians who do not have EM in the scope of their practice, but it's not everybody wants to pay for those. You have to get verbal consent and you have to have that as part of the record and not for each one, but it's good for a year. But you, you want to make sure that you're not using this for um, licensed professional counselors as well, because this these are not appropriate codes. Can they use those? No, they're not considered nurse practitioners or PAs. Um, or even physicians. And so I get this question a lot, actually. And and I noticed that it also came up on uh, something for Betsy Nicoletti, where she was saying that, you know, somebody asked in in one of her blogs, can a licensed professional counselor use these codes? Um, And, you know, if it's a client that has a, an email, you know, inquiry based on their therapy, and that is incorrect. Again, these codes are used for when E&M services are performed, a type would be done again through the HIPAA uh, secured platform and these are for patient initiated communications there is that uh, cumulative part of that but they're not for work to be done by clinical staff or for any clinicians who do not have e services in the scope of their practice, which would be those counselors, which would be, you know, pharmacists or anything like that. Their messaging codes, not telephone, video or in-person services. So you have to be very careful by trying to, you know, bill for something that isn't under the scope of those particular um practitioners. So they they still are practitioners, but you have to be very cautious about that. And also there is an editorial notation under the codes or after the codes nine N421 um, that d- talks about the online digital E&M services. It says provided by a qualified non-physician healthcare professional who may not report the physician or other qualified healthcare ENM services. Um, and it says, C codes 98970 to 98972. But it was also clear, this isn't for medical assistance either. If you can't bill out anything on your own, don't even try to do that. Otherwise, um, it could be invalid. And those codes I just mentioned, the 98970 to 98972, Medicare put, did not put those in their final rule. They said those are invalid codes on the fee schedule. So they're saying they're, the codes still exist, for example, for speech pathologists or physical therapists, OT, clinical workers, but we won't pay for them. So you would have to check first to see if there's any um, you know, RVUs assigned or if they would pay for them uh, from commercial plans, but Medicare does not. And so this is where if you have somebody that said, "Can a licensed medical, you know, or professional counselor use those codes?" The answer is no. So um, just be aware of that because I've seen I'm starting to see denials, and then people saying, "Hey, we build these services and they weren't covered. We don't know why." You have to read the directions. So taking a little bit of a left turn from the denials management, something came across my desk today that I wanted to share with you because I'm part of the NSCHBC and we share a lot of you know certified healthcare business consultants. We share a lot of ideas and things that are coming down the pike. And I'm sure you've either seen me on social media or I might've mentioned it here on the CodeCast. but the chat GPT situation about how scary it is right now. Well, there's this study out and it was from, it was under um, the JAMA. So journal of American medical association and a physician um, at us SD or UCSD. Sorry. Um, And he did something with chat GPT that I thought was interesting So he, what he did is that, well, he and his colleagues, they went to a uh, site called SubShredIt, and it's basically an ask docs, you know, you can ask a doctor anything. So on this platform, a website, uh, random people can ask physicians a question. It's kind of like Dr. Google, but you actually get a physician and to answer, you have to prove you're a physician first to the moderator. I would hate to be the one policing that in case somebody slipped by that, you know, it wasn't, but anyway, what they did is they collected 195 questions and answers. And for each question, they gave the exact same prompt to chat GPT 3.5 version one under healthcare to see What would happen? And then the three healthcare providers who were blinded to the authors scored the responses. And you should see these responses. Oh, my gosh. So they scored them, and 100% of the judges favored the chatbot. So I went and looked at exactly what the example questions were, and here are three of them. So one was question about risk of dying following swallowing and ingesting a toothpick. So this was uh, a question came from a patient or somebody that was um, accessing the site. So the physician response was very generic. It said if you surpass two to six hours, chances are they've passed into your intestines, which means it can be retrieved. It can't be retrieved easily, and then it just went on to say many people can swallow razor blades, toothpicks without issue. Um, in case you develop a stomach ache, don't hesitate to seek out an ER, and remember to point out the swallowed toothpick. Um, for now, that won't be doing much. That was the response. The chatbot response was much more empathetic. It said, "Um, it's natural to be concerned if you have ingested a foreign object, but in this case, it is highly unlikely that the toothpick you swallowed will cause you any serious harm. Toothpicks are made of wood, which is non-toxic and will not cause poisoning. However, it is possible for the toothpick to cause injury if it becomes stuck in the throat or if it punctures somewhere in the digestive tract. Now it's unlikely due to happen with a dull cooked toothpick, toothpick that is only two centimeters long. So if you're experiencing any symptoms such as abdominal pain or difficulty swallowing or vomiting, contact your healthcare provider or emergency facility for further evaluation right away. And then it went on and on. It just talked about, you know, it's a good idea to be cautious when consuming food, remove any foreign objects before eating. And then it said, it's understandable that you may be feeling paranoid, but try not to worry. It's highly unlikely that the toothpick will cause you any serious harm. Look at the difference there, the empathy, the personal, you know, discussion. I, I just was like, okay, that one, it was a physician basically. And by the way, the physicians are all volunteers. It's part of them doing, I guess, you know, they want to do some good work. And they said, we'll volunteer to answer some questions. Maybe they're up one night, can't sleep. And they're like, "Y'all yeah, get on here. I'm a doctor. I'll see what I can come up with. But the evaluation scores were scary. A hundred percent but preferred the chat bot and the, the, um, Quality score for the chatbot was 4.67, this out of five, and the physician got 3.33. And that was for quality. The empathy score was 4.33 for the chatbot and 2.0 for the physician. Oh my gosh. So here was another one. and I'll just give you a couple. This was question about risk of going blind following bleach being splashed into an eye resulting in irritated and dry eye. Okay, so what the doctor said, and this is it. Sounds like you'll be fine. You should flush the eye anytime you get a chemical or foreign body in the eye. You can also contact Poison Control, 1-800-222-1212. Okay, first of all, we could have looked that up ourselves, Dr. Google. But here's what the chat said. I mean, that was the response from the physician. The chat said, I'm sorry to hear that you got bleach splashed in your eye. It's important that you rinse out the eye as soon as possible after a chemical splash to remove as much of the chemical as possible and prevent further irritation or damage. If you have already not, if you have already not done so, you should rinse your eye with clean water or saline solution as soon as possible. And then it talked about how to do that. It said you can do this by holding your eye open and directing a gentle stream of water over your eye from the inner corner to the outer corner for at least 15 minutes. If you don't have access to water, you can use a saline solution or artificial tears to rinse the eye. Then it went into, if you're experiencing significant pain, redness, or vision changes, and if you or if you're unable to rinse your eye properly, please go seek medical attention immediately. But if you're just feeling that your eye is irritated and dry, you may be able to treat it at home using those artificial tears, or maybe some lubricating eye ointment. And then it says, it's highly unlikely that you'll go blind from getting bleach splashed in your eye, but please take care of your eyes, because if you don't, It could uh, you could have further irritation and damage, but to prevent that, seek medical attention if necessary. So, I mean, even I like the chatbot better on that one. The physician, their quality score got four. The the uh, I'm sorry, three. The chatbot got four. The empathy score for the chatbot four point six, and the mean uh, empathy score for the physician was two point three. I'm telling you guys, if and I'm saying this in a very general sense, but If our physicians don't get on board with making things more personal to a patient, then you're going to be replaced by machines that actually can add some personality and some personal about the patient into their discussions. I mean, let's face it, this was a robot that had empathy for a patient, unlike the physician who did not was who was being very generic and possibly even reading off something they googled So it it was actually scary to me to see this and how much better the chat GPT did. So that's just some food for thought for those of you that maybe are listening to this in your car or you've seen that chat GPT and you don't know what it's about. It's a scary thing because it could be replacing things as we know it. And when you see this kind of personal level of insight that a robot has, that's where it can get very, very, very scary. And it worries me, too, only because... I do a lot of audits, as you know. I probably audit probably a thousand records a month between payers and physician practices. I mean, it seems like that's 70% of my work now. And I see a lot of still cut and paste, auto populated things that have nothing to do with the encounter today. Um, I just spent today um, auditing, I think I'm up to 70 records today. It's been a long day. And I'm seeing review of systems, auto populated. Um, I'm seeing exams, auto-populated, that conflict with the complaint of the patient and the assessment and plan. Now, remember, I can't use that to score, but I can say this doesn't warrant any kind of visit because it's conflicting and it doesn't even look like you completed it. So now the whole record is suspect. So this is where we have such a breakdown when it comes to compliance and our documentation and if you, I and mean, we're talking about denials management today, if you want to see, um, you know, payers jump on this and say, let's just really see if the doctors are doing what they say they're doing, or is it really a robot creating this empathetic, um, you know, um, language within their report, I'm guaranteeing you they're going to start looking at that. So, if nothing else, this is the reason that AMA created the new e guidelines, it was to make it easier to make it less cumbersome to make it so the doctor actually spends more time with the patient. And what's being found is that the doctor spending less time with patients and getting more patients in. And so that 15 minutes they save not having to fill out the, you know, the bullet points on the history and exam, they're actually saying, Oh, fit another patient in and they're still not paying attention to patient care. So it's so important that it is individual to that patient. I, and I'll get off my soapbox on that now, but I'm just saying it, it's definitely crazy. Okay. My personal tidbit today, my Pittsburgh pirates, I should say my husband's, um, I, you know, I haven't been a Dodger fan for about 10 years since they, we had a huge issue with the, the cable companies where couldn't get it on TV for six years. So I switched to his pirates in Pittsburgh and. We are eighteen and eight. My number one in the national league, and that never happens. That hasn't happened, they said in thirty two years. So we're pretty excited and it's been fun to watch. and I've even made a little money on it. So yes, you know, I like my my sports betting and it's pretty fun. So hopefully, if you're a baseball fan, you're getting out and um, at least getting outside getting into a game or having some fun watching it on TV. Now, just so you know, watching a baseball game is like watching paint dry. It's very slow. So if you need to fold laundry, <laughs> (laughs) if you need to change sheets in in your bedroom, or if you need to start doing some meal prep, that is the time to put on a baseball game because you can get all the way through it. You don't really miss much and you don't feel like you've wasted three hours. So just letting you know, there's reason for baseball. It's great to listen to great to watch, but you can also work to it. Just saying, just saying so. All right, everyone make it a great rest of your week. Make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at @terrycoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer De Assassin Music.